which I believe we are required to do. I don't know if you know it, but in the, in the late 1800s in southwestern Ontario, most evangelical churches had a midweek service before a communion Sunday for confession. That was dropped at the start of the 20th century. But you wouldn't dare come to communion without having prepared yourself as a church. We dare come to communion without having prepared ourselves. So on Good Friday morning, you as the members and adherents of this church will come together around the Lord's table. And in preparation for that, we want to read a scripture that's directly related to the church coming together to celebrate the Lord's table. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to begin at verse 17 and go to 33. 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 17 and going through to verse 33. But, and uh, buts and therefores always tell you there are transitions, there are reasons. So in the logic, when you see a but and therefore, make sure you realize what's happening. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Let me just take a second on that verse. For the longest time in my life, I thought that Paul was saying here, Oh, come on. There had to be problems. No, I don't believe that's the way. What he's saying is there had to be factions so that the leaders would be approved. In other words, God lets the factions take place so those that he has set up to lead you in the right direction are able to be the problem resolvers and lead you with the kind of integrity that you need. I don't think it's a concession at all. I think it's a description of the reality of how God works. So the, the problems were there. And the leadership was showing itself. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, 
wait for one another. Now, can you look five ways? Can you look up? Can you look back? Can you look forward? Can you look in? And can you look out? If you can remember those five looks, you will understand what I believe Paul is teaching us here, that we need to apply when we're thinking about preparing to come to the table of the Lord for communion. In a very familiar passage, we can see five directions Paul instructed us to look in coming to the Lord's table. First of all, he says, take an upward look. Look up. Take an upward look. I received of the Lord. I received of the Lord. The communion has divine origins. Paul clearly claims that he has had direct revelation about the Last Supper. And the historic, as an historical reality, is importance for the church according to the Lord himself. When I was in university, and back in the last century, and I went to World Religions course, I still remember them saying, well, the church decided things, all, all, those, all those gospels are late, so the church put it in practice and they just wrote about it. The view of liberal Christians, and that's an anomaly in itself, but the view of liberal Christians is, the church decided to do it because it was practical. And what clearly is taught here is Paul received a revelation from Jesus Christ that this was something that he wanted done. It has divine origins. It's not something Peter thought of. It's not something Paul thought of. It's not something James thought of. It's in fact what God said, you do this. You do this. We know it from the Last Supper, but it was reinforced in what Paul says he received divine origin. Secondly, the communion has divine authority. This do. This do. Does that sound like a suggestion? Ah, oh, it would be nice if you would think about this as part of your services. No. There are those who would teach that grace means there are no commands. That doesn't mean that at all. There are some significant commands of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are to fulfill because now by grace we have been given the ability to do it. You couldn't on your own, but you can with a new nature. This do means that this is a practice that's not optional extra cost, or if we want to do it, this is something that's to be part of the regular schedule of our life together. This is a command for believers to obey and practice this ordinance. It's not an option that we can do or not do according to our own preferences. There are those people who, who, who feel, ah, I, I don't have to do this. I would argue very strongly that if the Lord says this do, it's not, uh, I have a choice on the matter. It's how willingly do I want to respond to what he asks of me. Because he always knows what's best for me. Thirdly, the communion has a divine significance. Would it not be fair to assume that the Lord knows what human beings need in our lives? Jesus said, it says of Jesus, he trusted himself to no one because he knew what was in man. And the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. That's why the Spirit of God who searches us is able to get hold of those things that often we're in denial of. Well, if that's the case, then he knows what we need in order to keep the central things the central things. 
There was an elderly man in, in our congregation in Forest when I moved there who died five or six years in. But he would come to my office and his little statement would be, Lori, always remember to keep that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. He wouldn't leave my office without saying, don't forget, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And what's happening in evangelical life in North America is that we're doing everything else but the main thing and moving ourselves off the gospel. And one of the things that your pastor and your elders are doing is making sure that you have a clear understanding of the main things and everything you do as a result of what God gifts you to do rather than simply those things that distract you. But if I am to keep on the main thing and not to drift to the things that I would prefer in my own personality, because we are so prone to drift, so in the supper, in the Lord's Supper, we are brought back time and time and time again to focus on the central gospel truths. Just like Israel came back time and time and time and time again and focused on the Exodus in the Passover. So just as Israel was told to come to the Passover, come to the Passover, come to the Passover, see God's taking you where he promised to take you. We come back time and time and time again to a table, not to get bored because we take the same elements, but to recognize everything revolves around the truths that are taught there. And God knew that we needed this. So first of all, you look up. When you're, when you're thinking about communion, you look up and say, Lord, you told me to be here. Lord, you set this up. Lord, you gave it the meaning. And Lord, you've asked me to come. I'll be there. Look up. Secondly, take a backward look. You take a backward look. And in verse 23, it says, A night in which he was betrayed. You see, what we do at the table is launched out of history. The events of that evening are very clear. They gathered in the upper room, which the Lord had already prepared somehow. The disciples, being proud, did not make provision for the ceremonial and servant-oriented foot washing. Even the ones who had gone to get the meal prepared did not welcome the other ones at the door and wash their feet, so it wasn't done. Jesus then takes and washes the disciples' feet. And if you remember, Peter refused. He says, no, 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 you can't do it. Jesus says, Peter, if you don't have your feet washed, you have no part with me. He says, oh, then give me a bath. He says, no, you're already clean because of the word I spoke to you. But he says, you've got to participate in this. Then out of that, they had the supper. They broke bread. Jesus spoke about what that meant in relationship to himself. They drank the cup. Jesus spoke about that. And then they left for the Garden of Gethsemane. You can read the events, but the one about the fish washing, you have to go back, not in this passage, but back into the Gospels to see. Well, what's the explanation of the events? Because that's the history of, of this event. Well, the explanation of the foot washing is the whole issue of humility and of example and willing obedience. When you look at the Corinthian context, you see in the Corinthian context how quickly Christians regress from this. So coming to communion, recognizing that we are serving one another and making sure we're doing that as part of it. 
If you know anything about, the, about Corinth, you will know that it's on an isthmus. And in that isthmus, there was a, at the, just north of the city, there was a, um, basically, uh, a bit of a um, canal that had been built. And so Corinth was full of very wealthy people who were making money from the trade route and a pile of slaves who were pulling those ships back and forth across through that canal. And so the church, which had won both the rich and the poor, had not integrated in terms of the care of each other. And so the rich would come and celebrate communion, and by the time the poor got there at the end of their 14 and 22-hour days, there was no food, there was no fellowship, and there was no care and understanding. And, and so the idea of the foot washing that's attached here is the recognition of the fact we come in humility. None of us are superior to another when we come to the table of the Lord. All of us are needy. All of us are broken in one way or another. Now, some of us will come with having had weeks that are really good, some with weeks where we've been in compromise, some weeks we feel absolutely depressed. The reality is you have a whole scope of different feelings. But we're all equal at the foot of the cross, and we're to care for each other at that point. In that Last Supper, Jesus said, If I, your Lord and Master, wash your feet, so you ought to wash one another's feet. We'll come back to that in a moment when we look outside, in terms of what that means, in terms of looking out for one another. But it certainly means in preparation. Don't you dare come with a proud attitude that says, I deserve to be here, but I don't think so, so should be. The reality is, we all need to be here, because we're all desperately in need of his help. And let's not think that we don't need the washing of the dirt off our feet. We pick that up as we go. The explanation of the broken bread is that Jesus' human body was going to be broken for the sins of the world. Fully man, he would fully suffer and fully died when he deserved none of it. It has become extremely meaningful to me when I think back of the prophecy back about Christ dying in Isaiah, to think that his human body, which replaced mine, on that cross, was traumatized in every possible way. Not only the physical beating he got, but you think, shamed, hung naked. He was deserted and felt alone. And in every way, that broken body talks about taking the traumas that we would have in our lives upon himself. Remember, we're talking about communion being rooted in history. So when it says we have a high priest who's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, don't you dare think for a moment he doesn't understand what you go through. Because he understands absolutely everything. Because what happened to him in those period of time as he was on the cross was the whole gamut, the whole, the whole spray, you could say, of what happens to human beings with the physical torture, the physical pain, and the physical death. And then thirdly, the explanation of the cup is a new covenant will be established by his death. Now, covenants are different than contracts. Let's say you have to have your roof fixed. 
So you find um, phone book and you ask your friends, and is there is there a reliable roofer? That may be an oxymoron, but um, is there? A, and you find one. Okay. So you have him come over and look at it. And he gives you a price, and you say, okay, I'll sign a contract with you. you say it's twenty thousand dollars to do the roof. I'll pay you three thousand dollars down, and the seventeen thousand when you finish. He says, no, I want five thousand dollars down because I'm not sure you're going to pay the seventeen thousand. So okay. And so you finally agree in a contract, and you pay part of it. But not, and the thing is, based on lack of trust, I will pay you if you will do it. I will do it if you will pay me. That's a contract. A covenant is not a contract. A covenant is agreement that one party makes with another party that says, I will fulfill my part no matter what you do. And God cut covenants with us. And the covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ was cut in his blood. And when covenants were cut in the Old Testament, the animal was cut in half, put on both sides, the blood shed, and the two parties would walk in between it. And so Jesus, in giving his infinite blood, cut a covenant that God says, though you, though, it says, he is faithful. Though we are unfaithful, he is faithful for he cannot deny himself. God will continue to fulfill what he agreed to do because of the nature of the covenant was cut in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when you kill that cop, you're holding an agreement that God says, that's your security, my friend. That always makes atonement for your sin. That always makes you acceptable before my throne of grace. I know what you did, but this is what I see, and this is what counts. So I'm saying the second thing you see is you have to take a look backwards. And you have to see this isn't just a nice little meal that we can play around with. There are certain things that have to be part of it because they symbolize the reality of what took place in that historical event, which is as central to us as the Exodus was to the Israelites. Look up, look back. Now you look forward. We're talking about how you can prepare. And I'd like you to create a little check sheet for yourself to do this before you get to Good Friday. Take a look forward. And it says in verse 26, till he comes. Till he comes. The temporary nature of communion is intended for us to be reminded of the transitory nature of our sojourn on earth and that the salvation of each of us is not concluded with life here, but we are to look forward to something far more permanent. I mean, you only get to eat a little bit of bread and drink a little bit of grape juice. Let me tell you, the marriage supper of the lamb is going to be really great. You don't even get fat. There's a, there's a, there's a supper that is laid out that we... We share in all of eternity that's beyond what your wildest dreams are. As you walk with God forever, this is the sign that that's coming. This is the sign. This is the down payment. That's going to be what you have forever and ever. Till he comes. The certain promise of the return is attached here. If I go away, I will come back. And the full bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ is an essential truth of the Christian faith. And it's a promise we are to stake our futures upon. Oh, we could argue about the millennium and and the rapture and some of those things. They're not, I believe them. I believe the statement of faith that the AGC has. But 
they're not the, they're not the fundamental truths that are absolutely crucial. But the angel said, in the same way he went to heaven, in the same way he will return. And therefore we know that that which is to come makes what we deal with now transitory. We're aliens and strangers on this earth. I crossed the border and they often ask me about citizenship. I don't have the courage to say of heaven. They, they don't like jokes at the border. But I think it. And I hope you think it too. Because when you were adopted into God's family, you were adopted into an eternal kingdom and you belong to the kingdom of heaven. You happen to be a Canadian. But your first citizenship is as heaven because you are an alien and a stranger as you work here. And communion is to remind us, don't put all your eggs in this world's basket. Just the massing of everything and getting worldly goods and, and being uh, praised by people and seeing that as the end game, you've missed it. You look up to know that God says, come here. You look back to see it's rooted in what Jesus Christ has done. That's how I got saved. And that's how I'm being saved. You look forward to say, and this is what's before me. As sure as shooting as I'm drawing breath today, that's what's going to happen to me. And I'm reminded that I'm, in a, I'm a pilgrim. I'm not a homesteader. Fourthly, and this is where it becomes pretty serious, you take an inward look. In verse 28 it says, let a man examine himself. It doesn't just mean meals. Let a person examine themselves. Communion is never to be taken lightly, nor as a rote response, nor without thoughtful preparation. There is, first of all, in verse 24, the reality of personal recollection. Do this in remembrance. Now, I think we often take that as meaning, therefore, it's not a reenactment like consubstantiation or transubstantiation like in the Lutherans or the Catholics. And we said it's a remembrance. But that's a verb. That's a verb. Which means bring it into remembrance. Do, do some thoughtful homework in your head. We are to prepare by thinking about what the Lord has done in calling us to receive his gift of salvation. And we must never forget where we were before he touched our lives and his sacrifice became our personal atonement. I've said that uh, we are prone to drift, and I, I believe that's really the case. It's very easy to drift and become less committed. But we're also prone to become proud. We're prone to think that because we're not living at the same moral depravity of our neighbors beside us, that we're doing very well. The reality is, I need to see that left to my own devices, I return to the vomit pretty quick. That I've discovered at 65 and 66, I still have besetting sins I thought I had done with at 40. It doesn't take long for those things that are hidden to return and begin to trip you up. And therefore, I need to go back and say, Lord, I need your help today. And I needed it yesterday and I didn't ask. I sure am going to need it tomorrow. And so the remembrance part is saying, Lord, you got hold of me when I was 10. And you've kept hold of me. I don't want to let go now. 
the reality of personal remembrance, never forgetting where we were before he touched us. I, I hope that you can remember your conversion, whether that was an individual Christ experience or whether it was a process. And you know he began a good work, and boy, he's been keeping doing a good work. And without that good work, I'm in deep doo-doo. There's also the necessity of personal declaration, verse 26. We don't just declare our faith once at our baptism. We are to make a habit of it. And at this table, we should be doing that. You heard the story about the husband and wife were married for 50 years. One day she said, you know, it would be nice if you just told me you love me again. He said, look, I told you 50 years ago when we got married, I haven't changed my mind. Well, you know that doesn't work very well if you're trying to nurture a relationship as a spouse, does it? Is the same thing is true about our witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough. Listen carefully. It's not enough in a fallen world that is moving so far away from understanding the true gospel for us to seem, seem to think that just because we live a little different in the world, they understand what we believe. You know that phrase that says, um, uh, witness all the time, use words when necessary? That's a, tr- that's a false statement. It was not made by Augustine. It's a false statement. If, in fact, you witness only by your works, people will think you're religious and try to become good to become like you and will be lost. The gospel is words. It has to be explained. And every now and then, we have to put our flag up and say, I, I'm, I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus. You do it wisely in the context of the people you work beside. You don't become a fanatic and idiot. But you find a way of creatively saying, here's why I'm committed. And the scripture says that when you come to communion, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. You're saying, I, I'm, I'm tied to this. I believe this. And I would suggest that the elders might think here, there's a place for some testimonies to be attached to that communion service sometime for people to say, this is how it impacts me. This is how I follow Christ. Personal declaration. There's the necessity of personal appreciation in verses 24 and 25. The giving of thanks, the remembrance, the sense of gratefulness for this great gift of his life. Do you ever drive down the road and all of a sudden you can't, it's safe to do it if you don't sing very well. Okay? And all of a sudden you just burst out in praise songs or in hymns because you recognize that you're looking at a sunset or you're looking at, at the beautiful spring coming forward. Something happening like that and you just, you can't help but just be so grateful for God's grace to you. Well, it seems to me that communion ought to produce that kind of personal appreciation. The giving of thanks, where we enumerate the things that we're grateful for what God has done. The remembrance. Okay, Lord, thank you that you, you didn't let me escape that time at Camp Oneida without coming to grips with whether I want to trust you or not. Okay, the sense of gratefulness for this great gift of life. And fourthly, there's a sense of necessity of personal evaluation. In verse 28, given the, the truth of verse 27 that someone can eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner, um, we need to deal with this. Now, first of all, let's deal with that phrase, unworthy manner. Because there are all kinds of people I've met over my 30-plus years of being pastor. 
who therefore, whenever they feel that they have disappointed God, will not come to communion because they say, I'm coming in an unworthy manner. I'm in no, I'm not fit to take it. Let me make very clear, that is not what this means at all. I, I wish, it's the only place I wish the Holy Spirit used a different word. Unworthy here has nothing to do about being sinless. So I'm going to say this to you. The day that you least feel at being, like being at communion is the day you most need to be there. Hear it again. The day you least feel like being at the Lord's table is the day you most need to be there. Because it has nothing to do with your performance of that week or that month or that season of your life at all. Because unworthy is everyone who comes because he makes us worthy because he takes our sins away. So there is no worthy person in terms of holiness who comes to the table. But in actual fact, if you come with a sense of pride saying, pretty good week, you've done so good, you come in an unworthy manner. You're actually coming saying, I am okay. And you're not okay. We all fall short of the glory of God. The unworthy manner means not recognizing what Christ has done. So it means that if you're taking it for granted, if you're doing it by rote, if you're not coming to grips with your sin, then you're coming with an unworthy manner. So in actual fact, the evil one does a big job on Christians. Especially at the time when they're in conflict. Especially in the time when they're in compromise. Especially in the time when they're not tracking close to God. And he says, you don't think you can go there. All those holy people there and you're not. You can't take that. When he's lying to you, you're meant to come and to repent saying, Lord, I'm so sorry, and take to your comfort the symbol that God did the work for you. But I've been a pastor a long time. And I've seen this happen over and over again. That people think unworthiness has to do with their performance. And it doesn't. Unworthiness has to do with your understanding that Christ pays. And if Christ pays and I need his help and I'm willing to repent, I better be there. And that's all it takes. But notice if we take it lightly, if we don't take communion seriously, that there are issues that come. Churches become dysfunctional. It says some have died in the Corinthian church. Some were sick in the Corinthian church. Precisely became they came with the compromise of the sin that they had and failing to deal with it and the arrogance of the one party with the other. So God says we need to take this pretty seriously. That we do homework with ourselves. That's why I go back to what I, I discovered when I did my Baptist history and polity at the start of my ministry. It was pretty standard procedure among most churches in the in two centuries ago that you would do a service of repentance before you do a service of communion. Precisely so we would do the homework to prepare the congregation to be able to rejoice together where God says, I'm releasing you. 
Now, I'm not saying you bring, need to bring that back, but I am saying the process of working that through personally is absolutely crucial for our lives. And I'm trying to sow a seed that says, when you start feeling bad, make sure it's not remorse. Let it take you to repentance. It says, godly sorrow produces repentance. And repentance is always the way back to God. But godly sorrow leads you to guilt, which you hold on to, and keeps you running away. If God would take you and me when we were sinners completely lost, he's never going to release us when we've fouled up in the process of growing with him. He's always there. And that infinite blood provides infinite atonement. Run to the Eucharist. There's a guy named Robert Weber. He died a couple years ago. He wrote a great big volume of books called The Worship Encyclopedia. But he would say to his students when they were having trouble, he says, flee to the Eucharist. Flee to the Eucharist. Don't run from it. Run to it. And the other thing he would say was to them, okay, you don't believe God's going to take care of you? Piggyback on my faith. Walk alongside of someone and said, okay, I know what God will do. You piggyback on my faith for a while. And God will take them forward. Okay, so what have we done so far? We said, look up and see that God set this up. Look back and see that it's, that it's rooted in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is paid, atoned for our sins. Look forward to see that this says that there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb that will last forever. And he, we, 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 every time we do this, we do it till he comes. This is a transitory meal to the one that really takes place. Then look inward. Having seen that perspective, look inward and say, okay, Lord, what kind of homework do I need to do? Spirit of God, don't let me be dysfunctional. Let me really hear what you have to tell me. And I'll do it. And finally, take an outward look. It says, Terry, for one another, verse 33. You think about it. If the Corinthians had waited for one another instead of proceeding with only one part of the congregation going ahead, they would have done the necessary body work to have a whole church. If they had waited till everybody got there, you wouldn't be reading this. So we need to see the readiness to see each other. There are four very specifics he talks about. He talks about the weak. And we need to watch for the stragglers, the ones missing at communion, the ones who are losing focus, the ones who are overwhelmed. They need to be here. Now, if you're at all typical, you probably sit in relatively the same place mostly every Sunday you come. So I would say to you that you have around you a mini congregation of people that you recognize that can be bad, that can be good. I want it to be good. Okay. When you see those people missing, guess whose responsibility it is? Yours. And if they're missing three communions, you know there's a problem. You need to take care of the weak because they're being hacked off. How about the sickly? There are those with bodily lives that are racked with pain and chronic illness and special needs. We need to know and we need to share. When you're looking at someone, make sure you're looking at their eyes, looking for the pain. Look, looking. I have to work at this. This didn't come naturally to me. But you're looking to see, how are you doing? Great. <laughs> but you, everything was. 
Believe the nonverbals before you believe the verbals every time. We look for the sickly. We look for the hungry. There are those who do not have enough. It shouldn't be the food bank that they have to go to first. And there should be no stigma when brothers and sisters have needs that need to be met. The, we, we need to look for that sort of thing amongst ourselves. And fourthly, the drunken. I'm going to say this, and just like everyone else in society, certain addictions find the back door into people's lives. While people in their sense of shame often try to hide their habits and guilt for being so vulnerable to them, the body life is to be such that we have a sense that something is wrong and we encourage or admonish. Two of the sermons that I've done in the One Another series over Seaforth is encourage one another. The next one is admonish one another. People need to be encouraged to finish the course. People need to be admonished to stop going down the wrong way. You will know and have connected with certain people in the life of this body. You are not busybodies. When you're seeing, the Spirit of God is saying, something's wrong there. That's the body life. And out of communion especially, we ought to come to the commitment that we're on the same track. We don't want anyone to be lost along the wayside. Paul said to the Corinthians, you wouldn't have some of the people sick, and you wouldn't have had some of them died if you paid more attention to the stuff. And people will struggle. We don't need to make them feel worse. We need to help them get past that. Sometimes it means confrontation when they're stubborn. Often it means an arm around saying, God has better for you than this. And then we need the willingness to serve one another. When we come, this is a quote that I've made. When we come to be part of the body, we will be healthier in our own faith walk. Most of the time we come for our own faith walk and give ourselves a little bit to the body. Here's my point of this passage. Communion is for the church. It's not a meal you take by yourself. So when we come to be part of the body and are looking for the welfare of the body and, and watching what's happening with other people when we gather together, your own faith walk will increase because God will put you with your giftedness precisely in the connection point where he wants to use you. And all spiritual gifts are meant for the building up of the body, not for your own jollies. There'll be a sense of fulfillment when you use your spiritual gift. But it's not primarily meant for that. It's primarily meant for us to fulfill the edification of the body. When Christian conversion moves us from being essentially selfish to selfless, and anything less than that, according especially to 1 John, is an aberration. If I don't love the brethren, that's an aberration. And it either needs to be corrected or is a denial that one is genuinely converted. If you can live your life without a care of the other believers, you're either on an aberrant path that needs to be corrected 
or you're not even a genuine believer because you move from being selfish to selfless. And it's not just, do I get to heaven? It's how do we all get there best? Because we belong to each other. Now, my goal this morning was that I won't be here on Good Friday. I'll be with the AGC church and the three churches that meet together in our area. Was that you could do this homework and prepare so that Good Friday will become a very, very significant communion service for you. And so let me remind you, as you prepare to communion, Good Friday, let, look up and say, the Lord wanted me to be here, and he set this up. Look back and remind yourself of the events on which it's based and on which those symbols stand. Then look ahead and say, and this is my down payment, that that's where I'm going to be forever and ever. And as sure as shooting, if I croak today, that's where I'm going. Then look inward and say, Holy Spirit, work on me for a while because i got a pile of blind spots that I need you to open up so I can grow. And then look outward. Instead of becoming isolated and insulated, become caring about the body with whom you share the supper. When I shared this last Sunday in um, Seaforth, the chairman of the elders came up to me and says, how do we get our congregation to keep doing that? That's for your elders to think about. Let's pray.